As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, it's Wendy. And it's Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast, your online resource for delicious and nutritious living. Welcome to another episode of the Food Heaven Podcast. Hey, everyone. How you doing, Wendy? I'm doing great. I had really good sleep last night. Good. And so I feel energized. Right now, we're in LA, and every time I come over here, it's like... You just never know what one day you're going to get because <laughs> <laughs> it depends on my flight. It depends how well I'm adjusting to the yeah. time difference. So I've actually adjusted quite smoothly because, um, I mean, the first night I told you was a little rough because um, there was a situation with the pillow. <laughs> yeah, the place we were staying. It, it's funny because we've had a series of like weird stays mm. lately, like we were in Savannah recently, and um, our place was haunted. I, <laughs> I hate to, and I don't mess give with that. Stereotypes about places, but um, at this point, I don't think it's a stereotype that yeah. Savannah is a haunted um, is a haunted city town. It's apparently one of the most haunted places in the United States. Um, we had a we had a little creepy experience where we were staying, and um, so we didn't sleep well there. No, let me tell you exactly what happened. Okay. So <laughs> what had happened was, first of all, I did not know that Savannah was a haunted city. I got in at 11 p.m. We were with Wendy and another friend. They were in another room. I was in my own room. Very creepy vibes. And I was like, okay, let me just make it work. They had the door shut, which freaks me out. <laughs> and I then was like Googling how much are homes in Savannah? Like, ooh. And then the first thing that pops up when you Google Savannah is most haunted city. And it's like haunted, 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 haunted. <laughs> and so for me, I'm like, okay. Like, first of all, it's it's like 2 a.m. <laughs> the, the place we're saying was like super creepy. So the things that happened that were off were my alarm kept going off at the same time every day and it was not set and I double triple checked it was not set was playing random songs then me and Wendy were out our friend was staying in the place that we were staying she had gone back early she left the door open for us because we were coming back soon and she started hearing voices and footsteps and she's like oh they're here so she goes into the living room and she's like they're not here. What's going on? Then she like locks the door. She hits me up. She's like, hey, um, are you guys here? <laughs> I'm like, girl, no. What's going on? I'll be like, we'll be there shortly. And she was like, oh, okay. And she didn't even say anything. I think she was just like, she was yeah. trying to keep it in. She wasn't trying to like freak us out. But eventually it came out. It absolutely came out. And then the lights, the lights were, were flickering. flickering. Yeah. And then by that point, I was like, I had, I was like, you guys. I'm not staying here. I was like looking for flights. I I can't really tolerate that stuff. 
I just, some people are like, oh, it's fine. Like, I, yeah, like I was we like, were like, girl, calm down. Like, it's going to be okay. We no. don't feel like it's anything, like, bad. There was definitely something there. I just didn't feel like, you know, you know, and there's, like, those, like, bad spirits. And it's just, like, very overwhelming. I didn't feel that. But there was definitely some kind of presence there. So we were like, oh, well, let's just get a hotel. And um, so I was like, y'all, let's just go to the hotel first. Yeah, check it and out. scope it out because it might be haunted, too. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like it was. It looked like it was haunted. And then we go to the receptionist and we're like, hey, you know, like this has been our experience. We just want to make sure that we have a comfortable stay because, you know, we think a place might be haunted. Like, do you know if there's been any weird activity? This girl tells us, well, honey, like, you're in Savannah. The right. whole place is pretty much right. haunted. She goes, <laughs> and then we, we asked her, you know how you can just tell when someone is just kind of lying? So we asked her, I was like, straight up, have there been reports here? Just be real. And she, i never seen someone blink that much. And she's like, <laughs> she took a 10 second pause, like, no. And she just kept blinking. Uh-uh. No, no. But what the other girl said was like, I can't guarantee that you won't see any ghosts here. <laughs> so and I was, I was like, like, thank you so much. Have a great day. Right, we're we were like, go. we're just going to. So then, yeah, it, it just. So then that night that I was like, y'all, I'm absolutely not sleeping in that room by myself. So I ended up sleeping in the room with Wendy and. It was just, it was just I a just, mess. I, I was kept, peeing in a cup all night because it, it was, I was scared to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you guys, it was, she literally put a bowl by the bed and was peeing in the bowl. And I kept waking up every, well, I don't think I ever slept, but I kept like hearing her thinking she was up peeing and looking over and she was still asleep. So it just was too much. Anyway, how did we even get on this tangent? I don't even know the where. Sleep. It was oh. the sleep. Anyways, um, today's episode. Yeah, so. today's episode. So we are, anyway, we slept well. Yeah, we slept well. We feel good. We're rested. Yeah, ready to do this episode. We're really excited because we're going to be speaking with Adia good in about self-care, self-worth, imposter syndrome, all of these all things, the things that she is amazing. I there's things that we talked about in this episode that are gems that I didn't even think we were going to go there, but it was great. We talk about like social media and how that plays a role in everything. I loved what she had to say about imposter syndrome and especially just as a black woman. And she gives tips, which I thought were very helpful for kind of how to combat that imposter syndrome. And usually when we talk about things like self-worth, it's very abstract. Like, mm. what does that even mean? And she really goes into, I, I learned, I feel like I didn't really know what it meant. She's like, this is exactly what it means. And these are exact practical ways that you can improve your self-worth. And also, if you have a poor self-worth, these are all the things it affects. So I just felt like this was one of my favorite episodes that we've done. Yeah, it was really good. And I also love that she spoke about the importance of language. So the way that you communicate and things that you can mm, do practically mm -hmm. to ensure that you're commuting, you're communicating in a way that exudes confidence and yes. high self-esteem, which Ex I think for women, especially, we're so used to always saying sorry or always saying mm -hmm. well or maybe and like how to communicate in a way that really communicates the message that you're trying to communicate without all of like that extra fluff that we don't need. Yeah, because we definitely were like, oh, yeah, we have done that and I still do that. So. I literally like I started incorporating it this morning because I had I, like I was communicating with someone about work stuff 
And I'm like, wait, how can I rephrase that to come across in a more confident way? And it really yeah. did work. Like, because she was like, oh, when you do that, people don't question you as much. It's like, exactly. that's just kind of what it is. And it, I found it to be really helpful. I just Super. did it this morning. So, yeah. Yes. It's a great episode. Yeah, you guys will get a lot from it. And also, um, you know, towards the end, she even talks about her TED Talk, which Homegirl is official with her TED Talk. It's a really good TED Talk, too. So stay tuned and let's just go ahead and get started. Okay. So we're super excited to talk to you because we had our podcast episodes last season. We were looking at the stats and we had a guest on who's actually one of my really good friends. She's an LCSW and she does one-on-one therapy and our episode was titled what was it like we all need therapy and we noticed that that got the most downloads out of all the episodes that we had last season so we're like okay people want to talk about mental health and so that's why we are so excited to have you on the podcast and have your expertise as well (laughs) thanks so much I'm happy to be talking with you all Great. So tell us a little bit about how you got started in this line of work. Were you doing something else before? How did you become interested in mental health? Tell us more. Yeah, so I actually had a pretty straight and direct path. I've always been interested in people and wanted to help people and sort of sensitive to people's sort of struggles and challenges. And that has been true for me since I was young. And then I had kind of this added thing, which is that both of my parents are clinical psychologists. So um, between my sort of personal interest in helping people and helping to address kind of problems in the world um, and seeing my parents have really fulfilling careers as psychologists, that path just made sense for me. And it's been a really great fit. So um, I sort of figured that out at the end of undergrad and then went straight to graduate school and then have been trained as a clinical psychologist, trained as a therapist in graduate school and have been practicing since then. I, you know, spent a lot of time doing individual and group therapy and some couples therapy, and I still do that. And I'm starting to kind of move into more evaluation and sort of programming and that sort of thing to try to also help people from sort of a broader perspective. That's so exciting and really cool that you're, you knew what you wanted to do from a young age. You saw your parents doing it. That's similar to my friend, actually. I think her mom is also an LCSW and she was inspired by her aunt. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, I think sometimes with certain careers, you have to see someone doing it (laughs) in order to know that it is a career and that it is for Yeah. 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 So you have a TED Talk, which is great. And I want to talk about that just kind of so you talk about this idea of self-worth, which is what we wanted to focus on in this conversation and just kind of like growing up, you know, how you struggled with this idea of self-worth and you tried to like, you know, make yourself busier or, you know, be that have that perfectionist mindset. Um, And so let's talk about just what is self-worth? Because I feel like it would be helpful to just have a definition like is this self-esteem? Is it self-confidence? Like what would you define self-worth as? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the way that I conceptualize self-worth and specifically kind of unconditional self-worth, which is what I talk about um, in the TED Talk, the TEDx Talk, 
is, um, is a sense that you deserve to be alive, to be loved and cared for, and to take up space. And I distinguish it from self-esteem, which I feel is more based on your talents or abilities, right? The things you are achieving or the things you think you can achieve um, or the things that you have in your possession. And I think people are often kind of like, well, how do I have a sense that I deserve to be alive and loved and cared for if I don't you know, think about that in relation to the things that I'm accomplishing or doing. And I think one way to think about this is if you considered a six-month-old baby, they have not accomplished anything, right? Like they probably made some people smile and laugh, but they haven't really done anything. Um, and yet I'm sure the vast majority of humans would believe that that six-month-old deserves to be alive, deserves to be loved and cared for, and to take a space. And I really feel that this is true for adults, right? So even if you have not achieved anything, aren't doing anything for someone else, I believe that you're still worthy. Um, and I think that when we have that sense that our worth is sort of innate um, and internal, that we can move through life in a different way. Um, and I think it helps with the things that we want to do on the external kind of wavelength or plane, however you want to say that, um, because it's not from a place of desperation or trying to prove ourselves. Exactly. And I feel like so many people these days have not the greatest self-worth. And I feel like even people who think that they do have good self-worth, maybe deep down don't. Like, why do you think so many people don't have a strong sense of self-worth these days? Like what's going on? Yeah, I think there are a number of things at play. Uh, I think one of the things is that we have so many opportunities to compare ourselves to other people these days, and particularly comparing the inside of our lives to the outside of other people's mm -hmm. lives. So whether it's, you know, social media, which is, you know, the big one, right? You can spend hours scrolling through Instagram, looking at other people's pictures and thinking, wow, they're so beautiful. They're so amazing. They have the most amazing life. They're always traveling, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, even watching reality TV, right? You know, seeing people live these big fancy lives. And so then we're pulled. It's very easy to be pulled into comparing ourselves, right? Well, you know, they always look happy in their pictures. And maybe if I looked like them, maybe if I talked like them, maybe if I did what they did, I would always be happy. Um, when the reality is we don't know if they're always happy. Mm -hmm. We know that that's what it looks like in pictures, but we're sort of always comparing ourselves and we can get very caught up in comparing. I also think we constantly receive advertisements and the way advertisements are designed is to make us feel a sense of lack so that we buy something to make up for that, right? They're designed to make us feel that if we buy this or if we have that, we will feel better, we will look better, we will be better, more people will like us, etc. And we get ads constantly. Since we are online all the time, we are constantly seeing ads that are communicating that to us. And then I think, you know, more generally, it feels like as a society, we've sort of lost touch with the things that are most important. Mm. Um, we tend, it seems, to focus more on achievement and material goods than on relationships and, you know, what it means to kind of have an internal sense of peace and well-being, which is, you know, something that external 
material goods can never provide for us, but we can get very caught up in believing that that will make us happy and make us feel the way we want to feel. Um, and so it feels sort of like a cultural shift away from things that are simple, things that connect us to each other and to the earth and towards things that are more complex, that are fancier, that are shinier. And I think we end up not feeling good about ourselves or our lives with that. Ugh, social media, mm -hmm. the internet. It's like you're damned if you do. Right. Damned if you <laughs> me, me and my friends, we actually started because we're we're all so sick of like the highlight reel kind of thing on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because you get so caught up. And you're like, oh, cute picture of myself. going to post it. But it's like that's not like even on vacation, you know, like you go on vacation and it's like you have a good time. But it's also there's like a lot of times that it's stressful. And like like me and my husband, we went on this um, three week vacation. It was great. But like we definitely had a fight on the vacation. And it's like, mm -hmm. how do you like convey that it's like not all like roses and butterflies without like being negative, but also wanting to share the highlights so we were just me and my friends were like we need to have a real instagram account that's like about the low lights in everyone's life so we actually <laughs> we started yeah it's called insta low lights it's private we haven't really posted yet but it's like i just like, like to yeah. see more realness and i totally feel you with that being um part of the problem for sure yeah and you know you're making me think about like i recommend to people that they limit the amount of time they take pictures when they're on vacation mm. because you can also like take up a whole chunk of time, whether you're socializing or on vacation, trying to get to the perfect picture. And then you're out of paying attention to the beautiful yeah. sights that you're seeing or really connecting with your friends. Sometimes I find that the most, when I have the most fun, I don't come away with any pictures mm -hmm. because I didn't spend 10 to 15 minutes of the time trying to get the perfect picture, then posting <laughs> it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well. Because, you know, we can orient not only what we're seeing, but what we're doing around showing up in a way that makes us seem more worthy. And then we miss out on the very experiences that would be meaningful, that would be connecting, that would be exciting, right? Just take a concert. Everybody is looking at the concert through their phone while they record mm. it oh my for God, social that's media, so right? Just, and you miss it. Yeah, I was so just annoying. in a concert and I'm like, girl, you're going to fall over. There was yes. like a ramp. I was like, you're literally about to fall over the ramp because she wasn't even paying attention. She was just like recording the thing the whole time. And I just saw like <laughs> lights in the audience. It was just like lights and everyone was recording. I, I would be so, so annoyed it. if I was a recording artist these days. I'd be like, I would have people check their phones or something because there was this good meme about 4th of July that's like, let me go look at my old Fourth of July videos from last year said no one ever. It's like put it down already. <laughs> I know. Right, it's like nobody wants to see your broke down video. Like, like one or two that. is okay. I, I feel like one or two. Yeah, like you know, I'm I mean, hey, right. woo. But like beyond that, it's like, come on, girl, guy, right. you're doing too much. Yeah, we do, we're doing the most right now. Yeah. Anyway, ugh, well, I feel it's also you. like a little scary because now it's the norm. And I remember I when know. I was growing up, because I think for our generation, um, Adia, I don't know how old you are, but for us, it was like we were coming up when the Internet was just out. And so mm -hmm. I don't I mean, like with my childhood and even my adolescence, like we never posted anything there <laughs> because was, yeah, there, there was, was no Instagram. social media available. And so it's just crazy how now this is the norm and this is just what everyone does. 
was. And I'm just like looking back and thinking about when I was growing up. And I, I don't know, I did find it a little more fulfilling, but I'm wondering what you think. Like, do you think that social media has contributed to this decrease in self-worth? Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's a good question. You know, I think on the one hand, I will say yes. I think I I look at young people these days and I feel sad for them. Like yeah. I do not envy, you know, them posting everything and seeing everything online. Like, you know, I talked about this in my TEDx talk, but, you know, feeling left out was a big challenge for me. And at least when I was left out or I didn't get invited to a party, I didn't have to see it on Snapchat. I wasn't mm. sitting at home watching everybody have a great time without me. It was just that I sort of knew that something was happening yeah. or I found out on Monday and it was already painful and hard as it was, but then to sit and watch it like that just has to be worse. Um, or like you make a mistake or you do something stupid and somebody captures it and then yeah. they post it all over, you know, Know, and then you can't live it down because everybody remembers. And so things like that, I certainly think make it harder. Um, so I, you know, obviously it was, it was present when I was growing up without all of this. Um, and I'm thankful that I didn't have, you know, social media, um, to exacerbate some of the things that I experienced, but I do think it makes it worse, um, you know, to just, for young people to grow up with the message that your worth is somewhat dependent on how many likes you get, mm. right? How many followers you have, right? We didn't have quantifiable things like that, um, which I think was very healthy. And now it's easier to compare because you have numbers, right? You can track mm -hmm. the number of likes, you can track the number of followers, and you can compare that to other people in a way that you just never could um, before. And I think, as we were saying before, it sort of communicates that you should live your life in a way that other people will approve of based on social media, yeah. right? Which is not something that I had any conception of. I didn't have any conception that somebody was watching or observing my life or what I was doing. So that wasn't at play when I was sort of trying to understand and find myself. Yeah. There's even the whole Venmo. Um, I forget what they're calling it, but like a Venmo phenomenon where people are getting like Venmo depression because people are seeing people Venmoing each other and then realizing I wasn't invited to that dinner oh, or whatever. No, I'm serious. <laughs> what? There's articles about it. Yes. Where oh it's my like, God. Even people who are dating, they use Venmo to see, was he really at home? You know what I mean? Like, who is he talking to? I can't even imagine growing up today. Much. You it know? is. Yeah, yeah, I'm also thinking, have you seen the show Euphoria? Oh, my God. I haven't. Yet. I haven't watched it. Oh, my God. I think it does a really good job at just really capturing what teens are going through nowadays, especially with social media. It's so, so good. There's also this documentary on Netflix that I think you watched to death, Social Animals. Oh, gosh. And it was really good. It's like social media destroying these um, these kids' lives. But anyways, destroying. moving on to other things. Um, <laughs> let's talk about imposter syndrome because I know that you cover this in your work. I've seen a lot of people lately talking about imposter syndrome on social media. And based on what they're saying, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can really relate to this. But I would love to hear your understanding of what imposter syndrome is and how it manifests. Sure. Yeah. So imposter syndrome is basically the phenomenon of feeling like a fake or a fraud despite evidence of high achievement. So 
I worked at the University of Chicago in their counseling center for um, a little over four years. And I would sort of joke that two thirds of the students there had imposter syndrome. And mm-hmm. I think right now Chicago is ranked as the third top school university in the country. Right. So these are really, really high achieving students who feel like they tricked somebody into letting them in and that it was a mistake. And, you know, if people really knew what they knew, then they wouldn't have gotten in or they'd get kicked out. Right. And this manifests in academic settings, in work settings. I have given imposter syndrome talks to black female law professors, to Mm -hmm. uh, women who are surgeons. Um, And so it's really kind of there on the outside, you would say this person is very high achieving. They're very successful. But internally, the person is feeling, I just got lucky. They really don't know me. If they really knew me, they'd kick me out. They'd fire me. And I just have to kind of shrink and hide and make sure nobody finds out that I'm actually not good enough to do this job or to work here. Um, And so I think it can manifest in a number of ways, right? People can stop asking questions. People can stop showing up as their full selves. Um, People feel sort of weighed down. People can overwork, right? Feel like they kind of constantly, constantly have to work um, without resting or without breaks in order to prove themselves. Um, And then people can also procrastinate, right? Because it can feel like it's too daunting to try or to start because, you know, they're just going to fail anyway. People are just going to find out that they're not good enough anyway. And, you know, I think this shows up for people from all backgrounds, but people of color, you know, it's for people of color to often interact with these other societal forces, right? So it interacts with discrimination and sexism and other forms of oppression because you're literally receiving messages that are saying, you don't deserve to be here. You're not smart enough. You were diversity admit or hire, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And if that is internalized, then that can exacerbate the sense of I actually shouldn't be here. Um, And so it can interact in that way. Oh, so much. So in terms of the imposter syndrome, right, like, does that just make so if you haven't if you're feeling imposter syndrome, especially let's just say like a black woman, like you said, who's a doctor or a neurosurgeon and feeling like, you know, they don't deserve to be there. Does that also have a major impact on your self-worth? Like, does that make it worse? Yeah, I you know, I think there is an interaction. I think that if you have a low self-worth, you are probably more likely to experience imposter syndrome. Mm, Um, Because if you're feeling like, you know, I'm not really worthy or I'm not worthy unless I do really well at this academic or, you know, career thing, then you are much more likely to you know, worry about proving yourself and worry about people finding out that you're not worthy. On the, in contrast, if you have a strong sense of self-worth, if you feel like, you know what, I'm a human and so I'm worthy, I deserve to be here, I deserve to be alive, I deserve to be cared for, etc., then you're much less likely to feel like an imposter when you show up into various spaces, right? Because you're not depending your worth Mm. on how other people see you or how well you do in a given circumstance. And so then it's easier to show up and ask the questions you need to ask if you're confused about something, right? Or to, to know that it's okay to learn and grow, right? And to not know everything from the start. I think often when people have imposter syndrome, it means that there's very little room for 
confusion, for growth, for not Mm -hmm. knowing something. And so then they sort of hinder their growth and development in various spaces because they can't show anybody that they don't know things. Um, But if you feel a sense of worthiness and it's like, oh no, I'm, you know, I'm a good person or I, you know, I deserve to be here, but I have some questions and that's okay. Um, And so then you can ask what you need to ask. Oh my God, that's such a good point. I'm just thinking back to like work meetings and even going as far back to school, like high school and just thinking about that. Like, I think that's a good way to um, really know, like, do you feel comfortable asking questions and feeling like, yeah, you belong. And, you know, that's not a problem for you to not know something, which I feel like for now that I'm thinking about it, because I also worked at a university in a student health center and, you know, we're in there definitely like a lot of folks had imposter syndrome and um, they would do talks on that as well. And, and you can kind of tell when people do have that low self-worth because they, yeah, they don't feel as comfortable even because I worked at a school that was focusing on um, students who were going into um, health careers. And so people would, and even just like, you know, working in clinics and sometimes seeing some of the medical residents or whoever, and knowing that they, they probably didn't know what they were doing, but then kind of pretended that they did anyway. I was like, okay, why are people not able to say like, Hey, I I don't know what I'm doing here. But anyway, um, one of the things that this is making me think about is kind of my work with eating disorders and body image and how Mm. so many, I do an activity with folks where we talk about like, what are the different things that make up your self-worth? And for a lot of the people I work with, it's like 75% body image. And I'm assuming like based on your work, like you would also agree that that should not be 75% of your self-worth. And a lot of my patients, they're women and they're really smart and they're like F the patriarchy and they get it like intellectually, but emotionally they really struggle. And so how do you help people bridge that gap between knowing that like body image should make up your self-worth and knowing that it's important to cultivate that, but then also still emotionally not really believing it for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good question. You know, I think the first is really just naming and, um, you know, identifying the reality of the fact that we receive a lot of messages about what our body should look like, right? There are constant messages in our society about who is worthy based on how they look. Um, You know, I think about the fact that I used to read like fashion magazines and then I stopped at some point and realized Mm -hmm. that they were sort of stressing me out Mm -hmm. because, you know, I always felt like I should look a certain way. And then I felt like I had to buy clothes to look a certain way. And it was stressful. I was a grad student. I didn't have any money to buy clothes. You know what I mean? It was just. And so once I stopped, I was like, I don't really want to go back to that. I know that's not true for everybody in terms of their feeling, but we receive constant messages about what our body should look like. And so I think just naming that is really helpful because, you know, it's not as though people developed this, you know, um, assessment of themselves based on their body image in a vacuum, right? It comes from a very real place. People come by it honestly, Um, you know, and sometimes the messages aren't just from society, but might be from family members. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just naming the fact that that makes it harder, I think is really important. Um, I also think acknowledging the fact that we live in a society where people who are deemed more attractive are treated better is is another thing that's really important to acknowledge, right? That is a reality, right? We know from self-report, we know from research that people who are perceived as, you know, overweight, people who are perceived as less attractive by often the, you know, 
white European norms are not treated as well as people who are perceived as sort of in line with those beauty norms. And I, I think if we don't acknowledge that, then we sort of overlook one of the mm-hmm. drivers and reasons why people are sort of striving for this ideal, because often at the core, it's, I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want to be seen for who I am and as a whole person. So I think that's important, sort of naming those forces. And then I think there's a body gratitude meditation that I learned um, in a women and femmes of color, like meditation group that I went to for a little bit. And it sort of involves sort of putting your hands on different parts of your body, thinking about how that body part serves you and sending it love and gratitude, right? So think about your thighs and how they carry you, how they're strong, how they allow you to walk, how they allow you to sit, how they allow you to stand and send them love and send them gratitude, right? And be, and it shifts the orientation of how we're thinking about our body, right? It's very different from, oh, my thighs are so fat and blah, 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 you know, et cetera. Um, so, I, so I think things like that can help to shift, right? It's a practice that sort of helps shift the mindset, And then I think sort of generally coming back to this idea of, you know, I am a whole worthy human, regardless of how I look, regardless of, you know, what I feel about my body, regardless of, you know, what other people say or think about my body and trying to sort of come, come back to that um, and think about, you know, the things that are important in terms of like values and how you want to show up in, as the world as more of a barometer of how you assess, you know, am I living life in the way I want to? Am I treating other people in the way I want to? I love that activity. That sounds great. It's definitely something I'm going to practice. Um, so with self-worth, I'm also thinking about people who, um, don't identify with having low self-worth. Like they're like, okay, I feel like, pretty good about my worthiness, but my expertise is constantly being questioned, which I think is something that Black Mm. people, people of color are constantly experiencing. It's something that I definitely experience um, as a dietitian in a clinical setting. It's something that I still experience um, professionally, Mm -hmm. depending on where I'm at. So have you, I mean, with people who are like constantly dealing with this and maybe they do feel good about themselves and they're like, yeah, I'm worthy. But then they end up questioning themselves because it's something that's happening all the time. Have there been strategies mm-hmm. that you've found to be useful with navigating those, you know, those situations? That's a really good question. Um, so the first thing that comes to mind, I don't know how this will sound, but, I, you know, I like to have a little, I think, healthy sense of arrogance. Mm. And I don't mean arrogance as in like, I'm the best and I don't listen to anybody and I'm perfect, blah, blah, blah. But like, no, like, I know what I'm talking about. I know my shit. Like, and I sort of carry that with me, right? And, you know, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm open to feedback. But I also am like, I know some stuff and I can share that. And somebody questioning me, especially if I get the feeling that it's because I'm a woman or because I'm black, you know, that's their problem. Mm. I very much am an advocate for externalizing racism, sexism, homophobia, all of those things, because it really isn't about you. It is about them and it's about society. And I know that that doesn't necessarily take away the pain and the sting of it, but at least it's not for you to own or figure out or, you know, try to try to solve for, right? Like if you don't trust my expertise, that's an issue with you 
and not an issue with me. Now, if I get some feedback that I'm off base, I'm open to hearing it, right? And I'll talk to a colleague. I will consult with somebody. I will talk to the person who's maybe questioning my advice or something like that about what it is about what I'm sharing or how I'm sharing it that doesn't feel helpful. Um, but I certainly feel like, no, like I have some good things to offer. Like, and, and I, you know, work at that and I'm not just going to let anybody sort of throw me off of that. I also think, you know, and this is just coming from my personal experience, I carry myself with that. And so when I'm speaking, I'm not doing a lot of hedging. And I think often women in particular are socialized to hedge like, well, maybe might, I don't know what you think mm. about this, but maybe if you try it, I don't know. Right. Yeah. And that hedging is, is fuel for questioning what you're saying because you're communicating. I'm not confident in this. Mm. So I would also encourage people to think about how are you communicating what you know or what you think and can you stop the hedging? Can you not say, maybe, I don't know, what do you think? Like, can you just say, you know, I was thinking about this and I think this would be really helpful. Yeah, don't, you know, love that. This might be helpful, like don't do that, right? <laughs> and so it may take some practice, right? Practicing with your girlfriends, practicing with whoever people you trust to say things with confidence. And it's going to feel vulnerable because when you hedge and somebody shoots it down, it feels like, well, I wasn't that sure anyway. So <laughs> you're not really shooting down my idea. But if you say it with confidence and somebody questions it, then it's like, oh, well, I just said I believe this. So now I have to kind of talk about that. Um, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, have your people who you can vent to, right, that you can go to and say, I can't believe they just said that. Like, I'm pretty sure that it's because I'm this identity, this background. And people who will say, yeah, like, I, you know, that's real. And not question you and not say, well, maybe it was because you did this or that. Mm -hmm. But to have people that will support and affirm you and reaffirm that, you know, you really do know what you're talking about. And I think it's also helpful for us. I'm doing sort of a run on thing. So hopefully that's okay. But helpful for us to think about what have you learned and how do you know what you know? How many mm. years of experience do you have? How many training sites have you been to? How many people have you seen or treated or helped? How many projects have you worked on? To take stock of your experiences that have built the foundation of the knowledge that you are working from, right? So that a little question of it doesn't make you forget everything that you've learned. Right. That's so helpful, especially with the language. That's something that I have definitely caught myself doing where you're communicating in a way that is not confident. Mm -hmm. And yeah, people can easily just take that run with it and like completely disregard everything that you're saying. So that is a really good, useful um, piece of advice that I'm definitely going to incorporate. Right. Um, and I'm also wondering for people that maybe don't have that um, high level of self-worth or a high level of confidence, do you have any like other practical things that they can do to help develop their self-worth so that they can get to a place of more confidence, more self-appreciation? I talk about this in my TEDx talk and I encourage people who are listening who are interested to check it out. You can just Google Adia Gooden TEDx and you'll find it. Um, but I you talk about four practices there. And the first one is forgiving yourself. I think a lot of us hold things against ourselves as proof that we're not worthy. Well, maybe I'd be worthy if I hadn't, you know, screwed that up when I was 16, et cetera. And so it's really important to sort of practice forgiveness, right? Like 
apologize to yourself and forgive your younger self and, you know, figure out what you've learned and how you've grown and acknowledge that you probably did the best you could in the circumstances, given what you knew then. Um, Another piece is self-acceptance, right? So this relates to what we were talking about with social media, but, you know, instead of comparing yourself to others, practice, you know, accepting and loving your qualities, your characteristics. And this could start with small things like having a birthmark on your chin and accepting and loving that to larger things that you want to love and accept and affirm about yourself, appreciate about yourself that society might not normally affirm. Um, And sort of, you know, it may be saying an affirmation, it may be expressing gratitude for this part of yourself, but shifting the narrative from critique and criticism to love and acceptance with yourself. And some of that may be sort of starting starting to do it before it feels natural and then having the comfort and the ease of, of accepting yourself grow as you practice that. Um, a big one is being there for yourself when life gets rough. I think we can get really caught up in blaming ourselves or other people when something hard happens to us. And in the midst of that, we forget to offer ourselves comfort and kindness. And so I think practicing self-compassion, feeling our emotions, you know, offering ourselves some love and physical touch and, you know, acknowledging that it's okay to feel what we're feeling is a big piece of that. Um, Kristen Neff is a psychologist. She has a great website. If you Google her, um, it's spelled N-E-F-F and then self-compassion. She has a lot of audio exercises that I recommend to people, which you can download for free. Those are really useful. Um, and I think the last thing is connecting to supportive people, right? You know, in the U S uh, we have this, motto of like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that doesn't always apply to communities of color, Mm -hmm. but there is still, you know, a value for independence and we really need other people and we need them not just, you know, on messenger or in your DMS, but we need to be face to face with people who love us. Right. And who remind us that we're worthy and that they love us even in our lowest points. And so making sure that you take time to spend time with people that you love, who love you, who affirm that you're worthy, um, is really helpful. Amazing tips. Thanks so much for sharing. And you guys definitely check out the TED Talk. Just in wrapping up, can you let people know, like, if they want to learn more, if they want to potentially work with you, where can they find out more about the work that you're doing? Sure. So I have a website where I have a blog that's sort of generally about Black women and mental health. I think people from all backgrounds often find the blog post useful. And that's at www dradiagooden.com. So D-R-A-D-I-A-G-O-O-D-E-N.com. I share daily mental health tips every weekday on my Instagram and Facebook page. My Instagram is at dradiagooden. And then I also share them on Twitter, which is dr. Adia Shani. So that's D-R-A-D-I-A-S-H-A-N-I. So um, I hope people check me out um, and people can, you know, find my contact information, send me a message or email me if they have other questions. Yay. I just followed you. (laughs) I'm loving everything that you (laughs) have. This is great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We learned a lot from this episode and I feel like people are going to love it. We really appreciate it. And 
We'll catch you on the flip side. Yeah, Bye. thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Adia. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to another really special episode of the Food Heaven podcast. Make sure that if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on iTunes. Do it right now before you forget. The more reviews you get, the higher we're ranked, which means that this episode can get out to more people. Listen up to this listener review by lovely LaShawn. Heard you all in another podcast and immediately subscribe. Great content and conversations. Thank you, lovely LaShawn, for leaving that review. Also, make sure to connect with us online at Food Heaven. We're on Instagram at Food Heaven. We're on Twitter at Food Heaven Show and Facebook at Food Heaven Made Easy. Our podcast is released every Wednesday. And in each episode, we cover tips and tricks for making lifelong, sustainable, healthy living changes to upgrade your diet and health. We also interview leading experts in the field of health and nutrition to pick their brains on how to cultivate a healthy life that you love. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.